Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. You're listening to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and joining me today is Tom Kovac, Executive Director of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Foundation. This nonprofit organization was established in 1999 to support and supplement Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department programs and initiatives. This month at Bally High Golf Club, the LVMPD Foundation is hosting the first installment of the Southern Nevada Business Leaders Forum, encouraging business leaders to support and partner with law enforcement in Southern Nevada. Tom, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Heather, for having me. So for those who don't know, what exactly does the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Foundation do? So the LVMPD Foundation has two main goals. Uh, the first is to raise funds for the police department and public safety initiatives in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, we fund technology initiatives, equipment purchases. We fund training for our officers, uh, officer wellness programs. Uh, we have a scholarship fund for the children of officers, and we fund hundreds of community engagement events throughout the year uh, that helps uplift the communities our officers serve, as well as to build stronger relationships between the police department and the communities they serve. And our biggest project is we're funding a new reality-based training center for the department uh, and uh, that is a $35 million first phase initiative. Uh, the second goal of the foundation is to build stronger relationships between the department and the communities they serve uh, by building stronger opportunities for the department to interact with the community and for the community to have a better understanding of the police department and our officers. Okay, tell us a little bit more about what you call the reality-based training center. What exactly does that mean? So the best training we can give our officers is to put them in as real a situation without actually being in the situation. And so we know if we can provide spaces that look and feel as close to a real space, a casino floor, mm -hmm. or a corridor of hotel rooms, or unfortunately, given the many recent events around the country, a school, mm. uh, and have our officers train in that real of an environment, when they do get called to an incident in one of those spaces, they'll be better prepared for it. Uh, they will be able to inoculate stress. Uh, they will be able to better make decisions uh, that often could mean life or death for somebody uh, themselves or someone else in this vicinity uh, when having to make the decision whether or not to use force and particular deadly force. So if we can put them in those situations in terms of the environment without being in the actual situation, uh, when they get into the actual situation, they'll be better prepared. And so that's the premise of reality-based training. And we are building a 
training center for the police department and other first responder agencies here in the state uh, to train together. But in terms of police officers, it's really giving them better skills to de-escalate a situation so they don't have to use force, in particular use of deadly force, and then put them in environments that they're likely to encounter. So for the people listening to the program, you know, if they think of a movie set that is a supermarket, that is a school, uh, a gas station, a casino floor, it's really creating a space in each of those scenarios that's as real and lifelike as possible. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when you were describing it. It's like, it sounds almost like a movie set, but that they can use for real life training. That's right. And so there are really two constructs of the facility. Uh, One is an indoor tactical training village, which has these real life spaces that we were just talking about. And then the other building has spaces for training Uh, where we can use uh, virtual reality and other technologies to put officers into scenarios uh, without having to have, you know, real life figures as, you know, the suspects and that allow us to change the scenarios frequently. So that there's both technology involved in reality-based training uh, as well as sort of the set design that, that we were just talking about in terms of the individual spaces. Nice. Okay. So next week, you've got the first installment of the Southern Nevada Business Leaders Forum. Tell us more about that and what exactly is going to be happening. So we are planning for next week's forum to be the first of a series. We'll probably plan to do them twice a year going forward that gives the business community the opportunity to come together, hear from leaders of their community, and talk about issues that relate directly to public safety within the business community. What we know all too well is that Las Vegas is going to have our sort of economic vitality tested when major incidents take place Uh, that might reduce people's confidence in public safety. So when we look back at days after 9-11, those terrorist attacks, we did see a reduction in travel to Las Vegas. Uh, Mm -hmm. We saw that in the days following 1 October, and we clearly saw that during the pandemic uh, when the Strip was shut down for several weeks. So whether it's a natural disaster or a man-made disaster, we know that our ability to be as vibrant economically as we want to is dependent on us being as safe as possible. And so the forum is going to provide the opportunity for the business community uh, to have conversations about how they can work with public safety organizations, how they can work with the police department to ensure that we have as safe a possible platform for our businesses to thrive. Right now, do you see a void in that area of business leaders supporting and working with law enforcement? The relationship between uh, business leaders and law enforcement is really strong here locally. 
Uh, what we're looking to do is sort of expand the number of business leaders and the members of the business community who are you know, investing in public safety, who are partaking in those conversations. Uh, to date, a lot of the conversations center on the gaming community, and in particular, the Strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we want to expand the conversation, we want to expand the dialogue to involve people who are new to that space uh, or uh, aren't in that space. And so our first forum uh, next week is featuring Mark Bedane, who many people know from his tenure with the Raiders, um, but he's now engaged with the new venture uh, that's going to bring another large uh, arts and entertainment venue to the south end of the Strip, an area that is less populated uh, with businesses and opportunities. And so it's a it's a great illustration of having someone who has been involved in the conversation from a sports team perspective, but not necessarily from an entertainment perspective. And and you know having him all, along with Commissioner uh, Michael Naft, whose commission district uh, oversees you know one half of the strip, uh, important to have him part of the conversation and. And, and then, you know, with the attendees, uh, members of the business community who are attending the luncheon, uh, they'll have the opportunity to comment and ask questions. And we're really looking to expand the number of people who are part of that dialogue. So speaking of professional sports and arenas, when I moved to Las Vegas 10 years ago, we had zero professional sports organizations. Now we have NFL, NHL, WNBA and minor league baseball. And it seems like we just keep expanding NASCAR. Why do you think we've seen such amazing growth and development here over the past decade? Well, I do in part believe it's because people feel safe coming here. People feel safe building businesses here uh, that attracts not only locals to attend events, but also people from around the country and around the world. Uh, and that's why this program is so important because we want to build on that success and continue to stay ahead of those who might want to do something negative in the community uh, and want to ensure that we're putting on the table uh, as many of the options that exist out there to maintain as high a public safety standard as we possibly can. Uh, because as you as you pointed out, uh, we've attracted all these teams. We've attracted these major events. You know, we're looking at adding Formula One next year, which is phenomenal opportunity yeah. for us. Uh, but we need to make sure that there is ongoing dialogue uh, between the business community and law enforcement uh, to ensure that we're at the forefront of technology application and other applications. Uh, in public safety, in particular, when we're talking about large-scale public events. Yeah, you know, it seems like Las Vegas is extremely resilient. Like, no matter what tries to take Vegas down, Vegas strong, and we come back. So in spite of the Great Recession, in spite of the Great Pandemic, besides the sports, what other types of major developments have you seen in this city, in spite of everything? Well, I think we need to look at the continued growth of properties on the Strip, you know, following mm-hmm. the pandemic, 
following one October, we've had major resort properties like Resorts World Open. Uh, we've had large entertainment venues uh, get planned and are under construction. So I think it goes uh, well beyond sports, as important as sports are, to include all types of entertainment uh, and to also include the continued development of, I guess you'd call it the bread and butter of, of Las Vegas, which are gaming floors and hotel rooms. Okay, so if someone listening wants to attend the Southern Nevada Business Leaders Forum, how do they do that? So uh, the event is a, a ticketed event. Uh, you get the panel discussion and the Q&A along with lunch at Bally High. Uh, and they can go to our website, lvmpdfoundation.org, uh, and purchase tickets. Okay, and when they're at the website, what else can they see there if they're interested in finding out more about what the foundation does or if they might want to offer support? You have volunteer opportunities, donation opportunities? Yes. So while on our website, they will be able to learn about the hundreds of public safety programs and initiatives that we fund every year. Uh, the one that we've just launched for this year is our backpack initiative. So as students return to school, in August, in advance of that, uh, we will be funding 12,000 backpacks filled with school supplies that we will give to the police department and our officers will distribute to families in need. Uh, so that's a major project uh, that we are seeking public support for. Uh, but in addition to that, visitors to the site will be able to learn about several other initiatives we have, including the training center, uh, as well as upcoming events. Uh, such as the annual The Sheriff Salutes the Best of the Badge Gala, which is taking place on October 21st this year at Wynn, Las Vegas. Nice. Okay. So once again, lvmpdfoundation.org, lvmpdfoundation.org. You can get tickets there to next week's Southern Nevada Business Leaders Forum, which is on Wednesday, June 29th from 1130 till 1 at Bally High Golf Club. So lvmpdfoundation.org if you want to find out more information or get your tickets. And you'll also be able to see about the other initiatives like the backpack program that they could use your help with and other events coming up. So Tom, thank you so much for being here with us again and letting us know what the LVMPD Foundation is doing. It seems like I see the logo everywhere. You're constantly involved in different events around the city, which is fantastic. So I appreciate you being here to let the listeners know more about it. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. We really appreciate your support and helping us spread the word. Thank you so much, Heather. I'm a wife and the mother of two kids. And when I get to work in the precinct house and put on my uniform, I can tell you as a police officer, we're building partnerships. This should be happening everywhere. So the police should be reaching out to this community and this community should reach out to the police. That's the way to make this a safer place. Start the conversation and help stop crime. To learn the five things you can do, go to ncpc.org slash prevent violent crime. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the Bureau of Justice Assistance. 
Welcome to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and joining me today is Bob Brown, CEO of Opportunity Village. This nonprofit was founded over six decades ago, and it helps Southern Nevadans with disabilities develop marketable job skills, get long-term work experience, gain independence, and increase self-esteem. Bob, thank you so much for being here today. Great to be here, Heather. Thanks so much. So I think most locals are familiar with the organization and might even attend some of your special events. But on a day-to-day basis, what exactly does Opportunity Village do? Oh, wow. That's how much time do you have? (laughs) As much time as we need. (laughs) It's a a huge operation. Most people know us by the magical forest and they come to our events. uh, But a lot of people say, well, you know, I I came to the event. I, I didn't know what you guys did. And, um, you know, we probably got to get better at that. And, and we talk about that a lot because every day, you know, we take in uh, right now we're serving about 900 people and wow. that's down about 30% um, from our peak for COVID. And we're working our way back up. We're, of course, we've got to hire more people in order to serve more people Yeah. and hiring so difficult right now, but we're working on it. But anyway, we take folks. And so we do a lot of dehabilitation. Uh, these are people with uh, severe intellectual disabilities, and uh, we will take them in and uh, they, they will arrive and we'll care for them during the day. And we, we're caring for somebody so that a family member can go out and work and so that they have, um, you know, some, some brightness to their day, some fun to their day. In, in our pride program, we have the most severely disabled people. In some cases, you're feeding people uh, through tubes. You're uh, taking care of all their needs. You're taking them to the bathroom. It's, it's a real intense day for folks. And then uh, in our Enable program, a little higher level folks, uh, they're testing out uh, some job skills. They're, you know, walking in our park. They're, they're, they're having um, creative uh, interludes. They're, they're really, it's about teaching uh, skills to those folks, life skills and other skills. And then we've got uh, just a ton of people that are out in jobs uh, we employ, I think, 100 and somewhere around 180 of our 550 employees are folks with disabilities. So we employ them to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also have jobs out in the community. Uh, we have jobs at uh, all over town. We have, you know, 64 uh, locations uh, that we have work sites on all over town where people are training in jobs, uh, learning about jobs, discovering new jobs. It's really about taking people and and, and figuring out what's best for them. And it's always centered on the individual. It's always about what that individual needs. And um, it's, uh, it's an adventure every single day. What sorts of jobs might some of them be doing at those 64 work sites? Yeah, okay. So, for example, they would be uh, working at the SBCA. They'd be working with the animals, feeding the animals, cleaning the cages. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would be at uh, one of our casinos where they would be doing uh, light janitorial. Uh, they could be at, um, they're, uh, it's one of our nonprofits that uh, we work with, work with a lot of nonprofits, provide them with some labor, and uh, they would be doing office work there. Just, a, you know, you name it. And, and the, the interesting thing is we're always looking for new ones, uh, new opportunities for folks, because, you know, 20 years ago, we had a very limited palette. Um, we, we had mostly um, janitorial jobs. And then some light manufacturing jobs, and we're way beyond that now. We've got, uh, you know, I think uh, people want to see different types of jobs, and so that we have to be creative about how we find those solutions for everybody, because not everybody wants to to do janitorial work. 
Right. Yeah. So some people are being cared for and others are working. Is there any kind of step up program that people go through? Like walk me through if someone comes to you brand new and they're like, well, I've never had a job before, but I want to learn the skills. What kind of program do they go through to get to that point? Yeah, first they get everybody gets assessed. So there's an assessment at the beginning to kind of figure out where their skill sets are. Mm-hmm. And then uh, training programs to help accelerate those skill sets based on what they want to do. So if somebody wanted to, uh, you know, do office work, if somebody wanted to work in a kitchen, there would be a starting point. And then they would work with their, their job coaches and their mentors, and they would develop those skill sets. And then they could either be placed um, in an outside kitchen or in, in, uh, in our own facility where we have a, a kitchen where we cook, bake cookies. So for every single individual, you set a, a personal plan, you figure out what it is they want to do. And in a lot of cases, they might say, you know, I don't know what I want to do. So then we have job discovery where we, okay, this week you're going to be doing testing out this job. Mm-hmm. And then next week we're going to try this job. And then the week after we're going to try this job. And it, it's, it's kind of like, during the class, you know, you're trying to figure out which job you, you like the best. And then once you kind of zone in on that's the job that I want, then we have a process for training you up in that position and, and helping you find jobs. Okay. If it wasn't for Opportunity Village, what options would your clients have for finding employment and becoming more self-sufficient? They'd be very limited uh, for people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, there's some uh, VR, that's some work there, but it's, you know, People don't have the manpower to be able to spend the time and I think have the expertise, train people up uh, like Opportunity Village does. I think that's something that we are, you know, we are, our job coaches are excellent at what they do. Our, our mentors are excellent with they, at what they do. It's really, you know, we talk a lot about reputation and, and certainly OV has a great reputation, but it's really about the people that work there and do the work every day. They're just a stellar group of people there. You know, they uh, we treat every single individual success story as a, as a huge success. You know, somebody gets a job and we're all excited about it. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, to make a job at Starbucks. And so that, you know, we've got baristas around town and a lot of people uh, hear about that or see that. It's, a, it's just a kick, you know, so we advertise and it's like a big victory for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a ton of wonderful nonprofits in the city, but obviously Opportunity Village is filling a void in the community that nobody else is really filling. Take us back six decades ago. Why was Opportunity Village originally founded and what was the goal back then? Yeah, well, you know, it was originally founded by, by seven families and their goal was, was that their children didn't have anything to do after school. You know, as, you know, they were, they matriculated out of, uh, out of high school. And then there was no, there was nothing to do. There were no jobs. And yeah. so the, the families banded together and created a work center. First, it was a school. And, and that had to do with the fact that was, this was before ADA and, and uh, schools didn't have programs for people with intellectual disabilities. So a lot of people were just sent home. Mm. Uh, and so the, the school was in, uh, invaluable for, for capturing that. And then of course, you know, once ADA came along and then, or, you know, the Education Act, then uh, mm-hmm. schools had to provide, uh, you know, care for people. And now they provide care up to 22. Uh, but after 22, the bus stops coming and um, a lot of parents are, uh, you know, at a, in a quandary as to what to do with their child because they've been in school for until they're 22 years old. So 
um, we end up, you know, hopefully, you know, we're trying to get ahead of the curve on a lot of that with people, but we still, from time to time, we'll get a parent, a parent panicked that, you know, the bus didn't come and that we have to deal with that. So, and we do deal with it. You know, we're pretty good about that. Yeah. So it's, um, uh, but the, the whole idea was let's find a solution for these kids. And so it started out as a little work center um, and it grew and it really, it didn't grow much probably for the first 30 years. Um, I think um, in the in the 80s and uh, in the 90s, it, it grew a lot faster. Obviously, the valley was booming um, and uh, there was a lot of growth. We had some really good leadership here uh, in uh, at Guthrie and Linda Smith. And, uh, you know, they uh, some buildings built and really did a very good job of uh, organizing the team. And we've just taken it for the last um, eight, nine years and, and kind of moved it to the next level which is um, expanding programs, making sure that uh, we have uh, job sites in the community, uh, making sure that we're placing people out into jobs. And it, older models would have it as a work center where we everybody's kind of put into one place and they kind of stay there for a long period of time. We're really trying to matriculate people out into the community and out into jobs. And then some people, if they don't want to do that, or if there's a challenge with them in the community, we always have OV to come and fall back on. So we really, it's kind of the best of both worlds uh, now where you've got um, a lot of choices for parents. And of course, parents, you know, the number and guardians, their number one thing is they want people to be safe and, and taken care of. And that's, you know, that's a priority for us. We want to make sure that people are, are safe and, and taken care of. Nice. Okay. Tell me more about Jordan, one of your custodians who recently won a gold medal in the Special Olympics. Yeah, Jordan uh, Jordan comes by my office every day and walks in there and says hi every single day. And then come to find out he was uh, uh, in the uh, Special Olympics and I'm an old Special Olympics coach. So I, I do love Special Olympics and love the program. And um, and sure enough, uh, you know, he won the, uh, the gold medal at the Nationals. And, uh, you know, we just couldn't be prouder of him. So we, we kind of made a big deal of it uh, at Opportunity Village, and, and we had him come in. We were, we were having a, um, a management meeting, so we had the whole management team there, and, and we had him come in and gave him a, a plaque and took a picture with him, and, and got to celebrate uh, with him and his family. His, his uh, mom came in, and, and it was just beautiful. You know, he's a, he's a great kid, and, um, you know, you would, have, you would never know talking to Jordan or listening to Jordan. And that's the, that's really the most special thing about Opportunity Village is you just don't know what's inside people. And we have people that are really nonverbal, but you know, you give them a paintbrush and they'll paint you something that'll just, you know, take your breath away. And so it's, it's really what's inside people and, and giving people the opportunity to express that. And, you know, that's what, that's what programs like Special Olympics and Opportunity Village are all about. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, winning a gold medal in anything but the Olympics, Special Olympics, right. I mean, that's fantastic. So. Yeah, I think it was the, the 200 meter. And, uh, you know, I, I told him, I said, I don't think I can swim 200 meters. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> He's racing it. I couldn't swim it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's quite the feat for anybody. So that, that's right. fantastic. So, Bob, you mentioned the Magical Forest earlier. What are some of the seasonal events that OV hosts each year? And obviously the Magical Forest is one of the big ones, but tell us more about that as well. Yeah, you know, uh, Magical Forest, I think this is our 30th year. It's, it's amazing because it's really, it has to be run by volunteers. I mean, uh, you know, for us to do a fundraiser, 
you know, we have to have volunteers. Otherwise, we can't count that revenue. We have to pay taxes on it. So, of course, we want we need all the money we can get. So, yeah, we have this wonderful group of volunteers that come in every year, and they love the experience and they love coming in, and they um, they're able to work, uh, you know, one night or two nights or six nights, whatever they want to do, and it really uh, makes a huge difference for us because it's just the whole feel of it. You know, there's a lot of for profits coming into town putting on Christmas shows, but it's, um, it's beautiful that we have this, uh, this core group of volunteers that comes and then the community, uh, the, uh, you know, of course they're, they're so wonderful coming and, and understanding that, you know, we're a nonprofit and this is how we raise money. And um, I think the last year, the big year that we did, it was 19. We got, we did it last year. It was, it was just kind of getting it started back up. But I think in, in 19, we had like 90,000 people wow. through and that was over days. So um, we've got Halloween, which is our um, Halloween event, and that usually starts in early uh, October. And then we do uh, Magical Forest starting in the first week in November, all the way through the end of the year. And uh, it's, uh, it's going to be great this year. We've got uh, a great team that puts it on. We've got rides and food and, um, of course, the train, uh, you know, all the, all the fun things that people come to know. And, of course, you know, Santa Claus is the, the real Santa Claus is there, as we all know. Uh, <laughs> the real one, yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> you can take your picture with him. And it's just a, it's a blast. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. I've never actually been. I've planned to go, but I do have to get out there because everyone that I know who has gone says it's an incredible event and it like a must see every year. What about the thrift store? What does the thrift store offer both for employees and for shoppers? Yeah, the thrift store is a wonderful, wonderful thing for us. Uh, we only have the mm -hmm. one. I think about 32 people there with disabilities. And so they can learn retail. Uh, they can learn front of the house, back of the house. Uh, they can learn uh, sorting. Uh, there's a lot of really cool things that they can do there, uh, including, uh, you know, being a checker. So it's a, it's a great job. And um, it's also, a, you know, it's, it's nice for Opportunity Village. It fits right into our model, which is, you know, we want to employ people with disabilities. We want to figure out, you know, how they can learn job skills. And if we could make a little bit of money, that goes back into, you know, paying the salaries of the people that uh, do the work at Opportunity Village. And, you know, we've got um, all these direct care associates now, and uh, we just announced, uh, you know, today that we're raising their, uh, their rate to $15 an hour. Nice. We had to do that just to compete. Yeah. And, and um, we always want to be kind of ahead of the curve on this stuff. Uh, I've always, I've said for many, many years, you know, the work they do is invaluable and uh, you know, whatever we have to pay them, we're going to pay them because uh, they are uh, the key to the whole operation. It's that, it's that one-on-one -on -one connection care that they give to the people that we serve that is so important to Opportunity Village. And, you know, they're just terrific people. I, I fight you for each one. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's the, the, the thrift store is just another terrific example of a, a model that, uh, that works really well for yeah, us. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so besides attending your fundraising events or shopping at the thrift store, how can community members help out in supporting Opportunity Village? Well, it, it, you know, they really just kind of have to know all the other things that we do. And so I'll kind of run down the list. Number one is, uh, of course, our bakery now. We have a, you know, we've had a kitchen for many years and we, we cooked cookies, uh, we bake cookies and, and um, we had a small operation where we sold some to the casinos. Mm. 
But uh, we really went big time this year. And um, you know, we're selling about $50,000 worth of cookies every month now. And um, it's, a, it's a nice little uh, business for us employs people with disabilities. And it's just a terrific uh, you know, way for us to, to make money. It's kind of recession proof because everybody wants a, a good yeah. cookie. And uh, it's funny that, you know, you, you look at um, a lot of the cookies that um, people eat in town are shipped from somewhere else. So it, not only does it cost less, but it saves a, a lot of transportation. And uh, that's, I think that's part of the reason they're selling so well. So people can buy our cookies and that's on our website. Mm-hmm. And then we have light manufacturing. So if people have um, projects, uh, pretty large scale projects, actually, uh, we do a lot of Cox cables. Uh, we have a, co- a contract with the Cox folks for their um, their cable packages. You know, the when people turn in their devices, um, we get them, we, we uh, sort the wires, we clean them, uh, we repackage them and then send them back out uh, and so they can be used again. So that's a that's a real good business for us, and we've got um, you know some other we put together uh, a lot of little things for the uh, hotel rooms. We still do um, uh, a lot of the coffee and tea uh, service that you'll see at some of the hotels in town uh, that are in the little packages when you get to your room. We put those together. So we're just you know we're we've got a lot of little projects that we do um, besides that, but those are the the mainstays in our in our manufacturing. And then you know I'm obviously. You know, the other thing is just, you know, fundraising. We've got a whole fundraising team and, uh, you know, that's uh, that's important for any nonprofit and every nonprofit in town has had to go through COVID and it's been, you know, brutal, yeah. but, you know, nobody, nobody made us whole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's been, it's been tough. Uh, you know, so I always uh, remind people the best thing you do is just, uh, you know, if, if, if you got a little extra money, just, you know, send us a check and, and uh, you know, you got to know it's going to be but to good use. Um, you know, we're really uh, good stewards of everybody's money. And that's, that's part of our, our DNA is making sure that we're doing the right things. So those are the, the three ways that, that people can really help us. We've got a lot of growth coming in the future. We're really excited about that. And so, you know, we'll see how that all plays out with, um, with ARPA funds and, uh, you know, the different um, uh, grants that are around right now. You know, we did uh, Betty's Village and you know, I'm sure you're going to ask me about that. But that's our big housing uh, move, and now so now we have a you know a twenty four seven operation with housing, and uh, that's been uh, just better than anybody expected. I mean, it's it's just amazing that you can transform lives like that, where they've got uh, you know a, a beautiful room, they've got a community that uh, is embracing, and uh, they've got the resources that they need in order to live independently. And it's just, it's just beautiful. So, you know, we've got to do that some more. I mean, that's, that's been a, just a home run for the organization and we definitely want to expand that. Yeah, that sounds great. I actually hadn't heard of that. So who is Betty that Betty's Village is named after? Ah, well, Betty, Betty Engelstadt, um, the Engelstadt Foundation, the Engelstadt Family Foundation donated uh, $35 million to us to build um, Betty's wow. Village. And um it was going to be the first, I think it's the largest donation to an organization like Opportunity Village in the country. And uh, we took that money and we built a world-class housing facility where people with intellectual disabilities can live independently. And it's just been, a, like I said, it's been a life changer for people. Uh, we've got uh, 88 beds in there. They're all filled. And, um, you know, the waiting list is about, got another 100 on the waiting list. So we're going we're gonna to build another one. It's been an amazing journey, and it really does speak to what you can do when people put their mind to it to, to make change in a community. 
you know, because we didn't have anything like this in the community. And if you were a parent of a child with a disability and you went to look for where your child was going to live when they're an adult, you'd be pretty, you'd be pretty sad. Yeah. You know, there was, there was not a lot of options. There was a few and, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, believe me, I'm not, you know, bad mouthing any, anybody else. I just, I'm a parent of a child with a disability myself. And I saw a lot of those places and uh, it was upsetting and uh, it still is. And so we've got to make sure that we're we're doing a better job for people and, and we're serving people where they need to be served. So, you know, while Opportunity Village for, you know, its first 60 some years uh, was great at taking care of people during the day, uh, we had to send people home. And uh, that was really tough for us sometimes because we knew they weren't going into great situations. Yeah. And now we can, now we have options. So yeah, that's, that's really been true. That's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so if someone listening wants to either volunteer or make a donation or just find out more about the events that are going on, the different businesses that you have, where they can go to buy cookies or go to the thrift store, right. what's the website where they can find everything out? Well, it's just it's uh, opportunityvillage.org. Everything's on there. You got a calendar on there. You got your, you know, you got all our services. You know, if you get a request to, to, you know, buy cookies or you got a request to get a quote for janitorial or you want to know, you know, if we're open, what days we're closed, um, if it's a holiday or not, all that information is on our website. There's videos up there that really, um, I think, speak to what the organization is about. And uh, there's just a lot of, a lot of really, really good information. It's a, it's a, it's a deep catalog website as uh, as most people's websites are but when you're as complex and you got so many different pieces you know you have to have a good website yeah you gotta have a lot of pages that's right where do i find this it, it actually it's it's pretty good i mean it's, it's gotten much better over the years so i'm starting to like our website a little more lately great okay so once again opportunityvillage.org if you want to find out more about what opportunity village does if you want to find out their events if you want to attend any of their business outlets whether it's the thrift store or whether you want to buy cookies if you want to volunteer and get involved in that or if you want to make a donation all of it is there opportunityvillage.org and Bob, I want to thank you so much for being here with us today and talking to us about this amazing nonprofit. You're definitely filling a void in the community. And I know everybody in Las Vegas loves Opportunity Village. They'd love to support the nonprofit. So hopefully more people now will know more about what you do and uh, hope we've helped you a little bit. Grateful you do, Heather. Grateful to you for, for doing this and grateful to all the people out there for all their support over all the years. We, we just really appreciate it. We can feel it. Awesome. Thanks, Bob. To some, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much, but that's not true. They're testing out vowels and consonants and trying different sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on meaning, especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Learn more at autismspeaks.org. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome to the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm your host, Heather Vale, and joining me today is Shabir Imber Safdar, Executive Director of the Partnership for Safe Medicines. Founded in 2003, the Partnership for Safe Medicines is a not-for-profit focused entirely on researching the danger of counterfeit drugs in America and educating the public about how to stay safe from them. Shabir, thank you so much for being here today. 
Thanks for having me. This is a life-saving topic. Yeah, absolutely. How common is this problem of drug overdoses because of counterfeit prescription drugs? Uh, pretty much a great deal of any drug death problem you have in any state, including Nevada, is driven now by a combination of, of opioids like prescription pills, but also fake pills. Just in Clark County alone, you know, you had 227 fentanyl-specific deaths, and those are primarily going to be split between cocaine and heroin that's been polluted with fentanyl, but also fake pills, fake pills being the big operative danger. Why is there a trend of lacing counterfeit pills with fentanyl specifically? So making a fake pill with fentanyl, making a counterfeit pill is so much cheaper and easier than actually stealing real Percocets. <laughs> and okay. it's incredibly profitable. You can take one kilo of fentanyl powder and turn it into $20 million uh, street value of pills. So that kilo, even if you bought it on the open market, maybe five, $6,000 from a dealer, that $20 million is a lot of profit to have. And so it, there's absolutely no reason to do anything else if you're in the drug trade. Okay, so it's cheaper, but isn't fentanyl a legitimate painkiller on its own? It is. It's usually only used in hospitals, in, a, in, a, in an operating room theater. You, if you get a colonoscopy, they might give you a tiny, tiny amount of it along with some other, uh, some other things. Or you might have a prescription for a fentanyl patch. But all the fentanyl that I'm talking about that goes into fake pills has been manufactured illegally, often in Mexico or Canada by criminal gangs. Why specifically is it being manufactured elsewhere in North America and not in the United States? So that's a really interesting question. You know, for about six years of this crisis, since 2013, it was made in China. And then China scheduled it as a controlled substance, and the Chinese chemical industry took the step of saying, okay, we're not in the business of making fentanyl, we're in the business of selling chemicals that you use to make fentanyl. And they started selling it to the Mexican cartels and other Canadian gangs. And the Mexican cartels, I think, like it, and they like making it, because unlike growing a field of poppies, you can do all of this in a lab. It's got the same attraction as methamphetamine. You've got a warehouse that you've secured. You've got people locked in there. They make the product. You don't have to have the, the, the land use or the labor that goes with poppies and all the security exposure. You can just make it right there in a warehouse and then start smuggling it around to where you want to take it. So did the Chinese regulations specifically cause the snowball effect that has made counterfeit drugs laced with fentanyl more popular and more prevalent over the past five to 10 years? I think so. I think if you look at the Mexican cartels, they've got decades upon decades of experience, both in the illicit drug trade and also in smuggling. They're really good at both those things. So once they learned how to or rented the expertise that allowed them to make fentanyl, mm -hmm. they really saw the demand. And that combined with the demand we saw from the opioid crisis, Americans' demand for opioids, really was problematic. You know, Americans, for the most part, many of them still don't know that you can make a perfect-looking fake Percocet. They have no idea that you can make a perfect-looking fake Oxy. And that's one of the things I le I've learned from families who've had teens who've died from these fake pills is they always start their conversation with me with, I had no idea. So for the cartels to make these fake pills and start selling them, 
it's it's a really great market, right? The market has a demand, it has an appetite, and they're happy to fill it. And they've been doing something like this with other illicit drugs for years. So if the counterfeit pills are perfect looking and look exactly like the brand name pill that they're trying to masquerade as, how exactly do we identify counterfeit medication? So at the, where we are today in this country with fake pills being, having been found in all 50 states in huge numbers and having killed people in all 50 states in huge numbers, the only way you know if the medicine you're taking is safe is if you got it from a licensed pharmacy in your state or if you got it from a hospital or your physician. Anywhere else, it is not only not safe, it's probably counterfeit. And in the case of fake pills, like fake opioids, the DEA samples them and tests them in labs every year. And they say that at this moment, four out of 10 of the ones that they sample have a fatal quantity of fentanyl in them, which is why you're seeing the deaths rise. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but last year, teen drug use went down and deaths went up. The reason what? is because the drug supply has gotten more deadly. So even with less use, we're seeing more fatalities. So basically you're saying online pharmacies are not safe to be buying medication at all in any situation. Unless they're licensed by the Nevada Board of Pharmacy, they're not safe. Okay. How does social media play a role in this whole crisis, with, especially with the teenagers? So we've seen for a number of years now, people complain that social media platforms don't do a good enough job of policing crime on their platform. Well, the drug traffickers figured that out and they went on social media and decided to set up shop. And you can find them very easily. If you look around on Snapchat or Instagram, you can find people posting pictures of piles of pills, Oxy, Percocet, sometimes cocaine. Um, and they're, they're posting these things there and they know that they're unlikely to get taken down by the platform security team. And if they do, they can just make another account. And so what they've done is they've used this as a marketing tool, just like anyone marketing a tennis shoe or, or a, a new kitchen knife would use social media to market. And the algorithms will conveniently suggest these people be your friends. They'll suggest their content. And what happens is, people and now increasingly young people, because that's who tends to use social media, are meeting their drug dealers that way and then conducting that transaction in real life, sometimes through the mail. Sometimes they live in your town and they will drive to your neighborhood and you'll meet them at their car and transact and buy a pill that could kill you half an hour later. Wow. So it's kind of like catfishing for drugs. <laughs> Except the <laughs> drugs are real. And instead of Instead of getting getting caught talking to someone of the wrong gender that's not your preference, you end up dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. What other drugs besides opioids are potentially counterfeit? So we are seeing a really big surge right now, and I really want to make sure people hear about it, of counterfeit Adderall. Hmm. People have been counterfeiting Adderall and filling it with methamphetamine. Now, methamphetamine is a psychostimulant, much like the active ingredient in Adderall, but of course it's highly addictive and incredibly destructive. You definitely don't want to get a, use it for a couple of weeks and then discover you're addicted. Yeah. And we found it in over 20 states now. Counterfeit Adderall is moving its way through this country. 
And same thing as, as, uh, as the fake opioids, you know, people are pressing pills, Adderall pills, but they're putting methamphetamine in them. And in a few cases, we've actually seen a little fentanyl. In Ohio, two college students died last month from counterfeit Adderall made with fentanyl. But most likely you're going to encounter it with methamphetamine, which is bad enough. Yeah. Yeah, no one wants to be an inadvertent meth addict. So what should consumers do if they suspect that a drug is counterfeit? Well, obviously don't take it. And certainly don't take it alone, right? You see a lot of deaths from people who have taken these counterfeit pills from people who took them by themselves and there was no one to call 911. There's no such thing as Narcanning yourself back to life. You know, if you have the opioid reversal agent Narcan with you, you will not get to use it if you're dying because you'll be incapable of actually operating it. I say quarantine it and, you know, destroy it. You know, flushing them down the toilet is not the best idea always. You can always drop them off at a pharmacy. They usually have a take back box and that's a great place. Your local pharmacist is a very trusted source for both destroying and and providing medicine. And then what I would say, the, the most important thing is we as parents, right? And I've got two teenagers and I've mm -hmm. got older parents, right? I've got kids I got to worry about buying drugs on Snapchat and parents I got to worry about buying drugs on the internet from some fake Canadian pharmacy. For my kids, I just have this conversation with them where I make sure they understand the risk. A lot of families have no idea perfect looking fake deadly pills exist. So that's the conversation I have with my kids. Did you know they exist? I'm not being histrionic here. Here's a lot of kids who've died who are your age from these deadly fake pills. And then with my parents, I have the opposite, similar but opposite conversation, which is, look, I know that this looks like it's a pharmacy in Canada. It's got a Canadian flag on the website, but it's not Canadian and it's not a pharmacy. And if you read the fine print, they say that your drugs are coming from Turkey. So let's work together to find other ways to save money. And you can find those tips on our website about saving money at www.safemedicines.org. Okay. So to kind of be devil's advocate, I'm thinking, okay, so if someone's taking what they think is a Percocet, a single pill, how much fentanyl could possibly be in there that that's going to cause an overdose within half an hour? So imagine four grains of salt. Okay. That's about how much it takes to kill you. Wow. Yeah, that's why these pills are so deadly because quality control if, is not great when you're making your own pills. And so they consistently put an extra grain in a, you know, in a mixture or the, or the mixture isn't fully mixed up right. It's not uniform and you get too much fentanyl in one pill. Do the gangs and the drug cartels that you talked about earlier know that they're causing deaths? Like, is that their goal? Or is the goal simply to make money and the overdoses and the deaths are a byproduct of that? The goal is to make money. And obviously, the first thing everyone always asks me when they start to learn about this is, but isn't it bad to kill your customers? And I'll tell you a horrible truth about addiction. If you know someone who's ever been through withdrawal, like opioid withdrawal, or even alcohol withdrawal, they will tell you that there is no worse feeling than going through withdrawal. They will do anything, which is why they are compelled to go find more drugs, to find more alcohol, to keep those withdrawal symptoms at bay. 
Unfortunately, what narcotics detectives have told me repeatedly is that if someone dies of a too powerful pill, you'll see other addicts in the area flock to that same dealer because they they can't afford to spend what little money they have on product that doesn't keep withdrawal symptoms at bay. Maybe they're telling themselves that, you know, they'll cut it in half and take half. But that actually is a terrible, terrible advertisement for other addicts. And so, yes, the cartel absolutely knows that they're killing people. Drug dealers absolutely know. You just had uh, a prosecution here in Nevada, uh, and there was a sentencing on the 9th where the gentleman selling the pills asked the buyer if she had Narcan, right? So they, they know. They absolutely know that that there's a risk of death, but in most cases they don't care, and they think that they will not it will not be connected to them. Wow. Okay. So you mentioned the website for the Partnership for Safe Medicines, which is simply safemedicines.org. Safemedicines.org. What else can consumers find when they go to that website? You can find tips for saving money if you've got a parent who is, for example, taking like let's say a blood thinner and they would like to find a cheaper method, you can find ways of, of getting discounts without necessarily endangering your safety. And reports on one of the new problems we're tracking in this country, which is counterfeit uh, and diverted HIV medication. There's a number of separately operating rings of counterfeiters in the US right now who have actually managed to make counterfeit HIV medication and get it to patients by duping pharmacists. And while I think, well, I think that that impact is pretty limited, it's a really important time to pay attention to the medication you're taking and talk to your pharmacist, make sure that y'all are on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so safemedicines.org, once again, if you wanna find out more information about this problem and keep your family safe, obviously, safemedicines.org. And Shabir, I want to thank you so much for being here with us and talking about this topic because, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of people are just completely unaware that this is even an issue. And if the counterfeits look so real, it's pretty easy for almost anyone to fall prey to this. So thank you for your time and I appreciate you spreading the word. Thank you for helping save lives. Charlie did not die from an overdose. Charlie was poisoned. Websites and social media selling fake medicines may look legitimate, but they're not. He died in less than 15 minutes after taking the pill. Any medication not purchased from a licensed pharmacy could be deadly. No other family should go through this. It's just horrific. Go to safe.pharmacy, learn about fake medicine on social media, and if an online pharmacy is safe. I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the Valley. The Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Foundation is holding the first installment of the Southern Nevada Business Leaders Forum on Wednesday, June 29th from 1130 a.m. to 1 o'clock p.m. at Valley High Golf Club. This event encourages business leaders to support and partner with law enforcement in Southern Nevada. Find out more or get your tickets at lvmpdfoundation.org. Ken Klein's Still Life Art Exhibit is showing through July 5th at the West Charleston Library, located on the CSN campus between Jones and Torrey Pines. Enjoy this local artist's hyper-realistic oil paintings featuring historical pop culture subjects. 
proceeds from art sales are being donated to charity. Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi-monthly musical fundraising party at The Space, with each event raising $10,000 for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include Monday, July 11th at 8 p.m., benefiting Rebuilding Together Southern Nevada, Monday, July 25th at 8 p.m., benefiting Sleep in Heavenly Peace, and Monday, August 8th at 8 p.m., benefiting the Muscular Dystrophy Association's Fill the Boot campaign. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. Hockey stars from the Vegas Golden Knights and football stars from the Las Vegas Raiders will be facing off against each other to play softball. The third annual Battle for Vegas charity softball game will take place on Monday, July 18th at 7.30 p.m. at Las Vegas Ballpark in downtown Summerlin. Watch Riley Smith of the Vegas Golden Knights and his teammates take on friends from the Las Vegas Raiders, with proceeds going to benefit the Vegas Golden Knights Foundation. Funds from the event will be distributed to two nonprofits, Communities and Schools of Nevada, the state's leading dropout prevention organization, and the Maximum Hope Foundation, founded by comedian Brad Garrett to provide financial assistance for families of children dealing with critical, life-threatening illnesses. Buy your tickets or find out more details at battleforvegas.com. And the Nevada Wheelchair Foundation is giving out free wheelchairs to those who need them for permanent use but can't afford them. To request a wheelchair or help with the mission, visit nevadawheelchairfoundation.org. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 